0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Back the Truck Up podcast. I am James Rooster Bowen, along with Justice Super Trucker Martin and special guest this week. We got a good one, Professor Sal Mercogliano, maritime historian, professor at Campbell University, voice of the Campbell Camels lacrosse team, and host of the YouTube channel, What's Going On With Shipping. Sal, it's been a while. How you doing, man? I'm doing
1: good, Rooster. I appreciate that. You make me sound more interesting than I actually am. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Oh come on, man! I mean, a, a a great maritime mind like yourself, you know, you, you you do deserve some pomp and circumstance a little bit, you know. I <laughs> don't I don't know about that, but I appreciate it, sir. Yeah, back before I kind of got over here and backed the truck up, I did a little bit of uh, independent journalism stuff, and I was doing a, a a channel and you know late nights, like one a.m. to five a.m., and I needed something to help fill the gap. And uh lo and behold, a certain ship by the name of Evergiven decided to do a belly flop in the Suez Canal. Kind of got to looking for some news on that and then uh ran into Sal starting up his own channel. Uh believe it didn't it start off as what's going on with the Evergiven before you changed the name?
1: Uh What was going on in the Suez is, is what I had. Ah, oh, uh, what's going what on with the Suez.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that was a whole mess. I mean... <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, that, that was uh, that. That was my kind of. Uh, everyone has like fifteen minutes of fame. I think that was my six days of fame right there. Yeah. Of of dealing with that, I had I had started. Uh, uh, I'd been writing articles for G Captain, a online maritime website. And when Ever Given went sideways in the Suez, the uh, BBC called John Conrad, who's the CEO of, of G Captain, and said, "Hey, listen, we need somebody to come on with some maritime experience to talk about this on the BBC." Would you like to do it? And, and that happened to be John's daughter's birthday that day. And John's like, nah, I, I he goes, I can't do it today. It's my daughter's birthday. He goes, but I know someone who loves to talk. So let me send you over to this guy. And so I did it. I did this, I did this, you know, quick little hit on BBC World News for about five minutes. And at the end of it, this producer said, you know, I all of a sudden clicked in my ear and said, Hey, hang on, hang on, the, you know, hang on for a minute, we want to talk to you. And so I hung on for a second, and the producer came on and said, wow, he goes, you were you were really good. He goes, you talked about the history. You talked about the operation. You talked about the policy. You, you're like three guests in one. Uh, we're we're going to share your name uh, out there. And I said, well, I appreciate that. It's nice of you to say. I said, I'm sure you say this to everyone. He goes, no, I'm British. We don't say that to everybody. We're, we, we're, we're usually pretty critical. And and he said, "Get ready, your world's about to change." And I'm not kidding, guys. For six days, I was like broadcasting nonstop. You, you were the on, man. On the, <laughs> I, I was the face of a maritime disaster. And and uh, so uh, one of the things that kicked me going on the on the YouTube channel was you know you do those quick little hits on BBC and all these other channels, and it's like they get a chance to talk enough about it. So started that that uh, YouTube channel, and boom, it's it's been going ever since. Uh, about forty five. Thousand subscribers, four and a mil, four and a half million hits. It's crazy.
2: Yeah, yeah. one of the problems with broadcasts, especially, is you know you get thirty seconds if you're lucky, maybe five to six minutes if you're stellar. The nice thing about with podcasts and long form is you get on TV, you get your soundbite in, but you don't really get the full story or the full context of what's going on. And then you have your own little side hustle here where you can actually take your time and get like the full breath out and people who want to know more about the, about the situation at hand, you know, they go right to the horse's mouth, so to speak.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of the great things that you can find subject matter experts out there and really tap into them. And one of the nice things about what you guys are doing with the podcast, what I do with my YouTube channel is I can get experts. I can get people who want to come out and talk about it. And especially when you can offer them, you know, Hey, how long do you want to talk? Do you want to do a five minute, 10, 15, 30 minutes. Let's talk about this subject and really kind of, you know, dig into it and get the details because some people just want that cursory. They just want the little quick little, you know, information. That's it. You know, I found I found in my channel that when, you know, a maritime incident happens, put something out there quick, quick little analysis, give some background on it. That's what people like to see.
2: The reason why Joe Rogan's the biggest podcast out there is, you know, it's really hard to uh, stretch three hours and not know what you're talking about.
1: No, ex- exactly right. And, 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 you know, some people have that ability to do it. I, I joke a lot about it. the reason that I became kind of fairly good at doing broadcasting is for almost 10 years now, I, you, you joked about it at the beginning, I do the commentary for our, my university's lacrosse team. And it really taught me how to, number one, you know, talk concisely in a short period of time. So, you know, I can do that 10, 30 second little sound bite, but at the same time too, when all of a sudden there's nothing going on, you can stretch it out and talk for a long period of time about something and still keep people entertained. That comes from my teaching experience.
2: I told Duner I can't wait to go back and listen to old episodes on this and just see how, <laughs> how bad they were <laughs> and how much we've improved. Oh yeah.
1: You, you'll cringe. You'll cringe about it. It's always the way. I mean, you get, uh, you get so much better when you do this over time. Can't wait. So, okay.
2: Speaking of cringing. So, so Evergreen was the first ship that got stuck. Then we had Ever Forward. What is up with all these ships getting stuck? Is it, are they just too big or the ports are going in too small
1: or is the, are the captains just inexperienced now? What's. Well, I think you get a couple of things. Number one, ships have gotten bigger. I I mean, you look at that article that Rachel Premack did over at Freight Waves. (laughs) Oh,
0: he had to make it.
1: (laughs) And well, I mean, Rachel got, it was a great article. I love that article a lot. Rachel and I disagree on this, but Rachel and I talked about this and, you know, big ships have gotten bigger. I mean, and when I say big, I mean big. I mean, people really can't fathom the size of some of these vessels. So when you talk about Ever Given at 1,300 feet long, 200 feet wide, drawing near, nearly 50 feet of water, carrying 20,000 TEU, you know, that, that's that's a, a tough one for people to figure out. When I tell people that you can take the Navy's largest aircraft carrier, stick it inside Ever, Ever Given, and then put another one on top of them. And still have room at the forward and back end for more ships. They they really can't really
2: process that. And and seeing and seeing them on TV doesn't do it justice either. I, I worked at the Packer Terminal in Philadelphia for a couple of months when I first moved here in 2012, 2014. yeah twenty twelve when the first time you see these ships in person you're just like holy crap. So there's a there's an old the uh, USS United States. It's one of the sister ships from the Titanic um, that was built. They have that at the dock. Uh, next to the Packer Terminal as well. So when you see that ship, you're basically looking at an exact copy of the Titanic. And even that, you're just like, holy cow, this thing is huge. And then the, the container ships come in, and they're like 10 of those things just stacked on top of each other.
1: Oh, it, it, it's, again, you talk about one of my favorite ships, the SS United States sitting in Philadelphia. She's been there for a long time. Uh, she was Too the long. flagship of the U.S. Merchant Marine. But the modern container ships, you know, I always tell people when you're at the the bottom of the hold of, of a container ship the size of Ever Given, and you're looking up at the stack. You're talking about you're being at the bottom of a 24-story building. You know, Jeez. that's that's how high you're talking about, how tall you are. It's a quarter of a mile, quarter of a mile from the stern to the bow. And then back again is a half a mile. And and by the way, the entire crew on that vessel is 25. And, and one of the things that wow. we've been doing is over the years, and it's been really amped up since the 2000s, since the early 2000s is ships have gotten much bigger. They've just increased exponentially in size. And what this does is, as you guys can understand, for shipping companies, this lowers their operating costs because the more boxes they can pile on a ship, the less the cost is per box to transport. Mm -hmm. And so they love this. They love this to death. They love the idea of consolidating and putting more boxes onto a ship because it lowers their operating costs, lowers fuel costs, lowers crew costs, lowers port costs, lowers everything. The problem becomes on the shore side is that it takes two years to build a ship like Ever Given, but it only but it takes 10 years to modernize a port with all the accompanying infrastructure. And what we're seeing right now is that lag. You know, we don't have a ship shortage. The problem is we got too many ships. We got too much cargo on the sea. This is why you're seeing the backlog off the port of L.A. and Long Beach last year. And now you're seeing it not just at L.A. and Long Beach, but now at Savannah at New York, New Jersey in Virginia at Charleston at Houston in the northern european ports you're seeing this everywhere and the problem is we are just jamming these ships full of cargo bringing them into terminals that cannot process them fast enough and the worst case is the us which has the least efficient ports in the world and we saw this in a report that just came out by world bank that put la and long beach second second to last and last of 370 ports. I mean Long Beach was 369 and LA was 370. And then we're seeing it right now with detention and uh, demerge uh, accounts where the U.S ranks at the top five for the worst cases of detention and demerge in the ports because they can't clear it enough. And, and so when you talked about the groundings, the groundings are largely because these ships have gotten so big. There's so many factors at play with them that there's very little margin for error. So, if you have ever given high winds in the Suez, that ship doesn't have a lot of play uh, to turn left or right into the wind. And when it gets hit by a huge gust of wind, there, there's little ability to react to it. Same thing with Ever Forward coming out of Baltimore. Ever Forward is a much larger ship, that channel is very narrow coming out. And if you lose your situational awareness, I mean, I you know, I drive a fire truck. I know how big a fire truck is driving down the road. And if you lose attention for just a second, you can drift that truck over a line, over a lane. You can't do that with a big ship. If you drift over the line a little bit, you're ground. And that's what we're seeing happening right now.
2: Yeah, just like missing your turn in the semi, you know, you you really got to know what uh, what's going on down the road. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck real quick. Yep. Um, so this... Other ship, the Ever Forward, was it the same size, or was it even bigger than the
1: Evergreen? Ever was smaller, actually. So it's small. So, but okay. both those ships are really unique because they, they 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 are maximum size to go through different canals. So Evergiven is part of this ultra large container vessel class. So this is a type of vessel that can carry between 20,000 and 24,000 boxes. It is the max size you can get through the Suez Canal. So ships like Evergiven operate between Asia and Europe exclusively they don't even come to the US. US ports can't handle ships these size. So these vessels move cargo on that big route that basically starts at Rotterdam and ends in Shanghai.
2: Do you know like what the ratio of these ships are compared to the rest of like the global fleet of ships? Like are they are is, is there just a handful of these but they're so big that they can dominate the total freight volume or is their slice of the pie big and getting bigger?
1: It, it's it's Right now, they, they represent. I mean, the number of ships that are over that twenty thousand uh, uh, TU class are probably about one hundred and fifty or so. So, when you're looking at over two thousand container ships, it's you know it's small in terms of overall numbers, but in terms of carriage capacity, number mm. of containers, it's purport- it's large. Because obviously, you know, when you're comparing it against a ship that can carry you know less than a thousand small feeder vessels, it it doesn't really measure as much. And what we're seeing is more of these ships being built not in large numbers. They're not, you know, overwhelmingly, we're not, you know, we're not seeing the phase out of of all the smaller containers, but they do represent a huge amount of vessels. And the problem with them is they're very restricted in where they can go. There's only certain ports that can handle them due to the dredging, the draft required for the vessels, and more importantly, the cranes, because you have to have certain cranes that can reach that far. I mean, you're talking about stacks, 24 containers high, 24 wide. And Mm so you see that. Now, Gibbon was designed for what we call Suez Max. She's the maximum size to go through the Suez Canal. Ever forward is what's called a, a Neo-Panamax. So the Panama Canal has locks. The Suez Canal doesn't. When you go through the, the Suez Canal, it's a ditch. It's a big ditch. It's all it is. It's, just, it's, a ditch. <laughs> it's a ditch between Africa and Asia. It's all it is. There's no locks. You sail through it. You can't get lost. It's, it's you know, follow the channel markers and you're good. The... Panama Canal has locks. You got to get over the mountain. You got to get over the the continental divide. So you got to climb over the mountains into Katoon Lake and come down the backside. But the problem was when Panama was built in 1914, the locks kind of set the size for ships. You couldn't be bigger than those locks. Well, ships have gotten bigger. And early in 2000, the Panama Canal Authority, the Panamanian government, decided to build a new set of locks. And they did. The problem is they designed them in 2000, but by the time the canal opened in 2016, ships have gotten even bigger. But those new locks, what we call neo Panamax, now allow larger vessels to come through. Before 2016, the biggest container ships you can come through the Panama Canal were about 4,000 to 5,000 TEUs. Now, you can bring 12 to 15,000 TEU ships through, and that's what Everforward was. She's a neo Panamax. Which means that ships coming from Asia have have alternatives. They can go westbound; those big, huge, massive ones like Evergiven, offload their containers in transport in, in transfer ports like Valencia, Piraeus, Algeciras, Rotterdam, Felixstowe, and then put them on smaller ships to head to the United States, or you can put them on a neo Panamax vessel like Everford sail it directly across the Pacific, right past L.A. and Long Beach, avoid them if you can, go through the new locks of the canal, and then come right to the east coast of the United States. And that's what Everforward was. She came through the new lane of the Panama Canal and was doing a circuit up and down the east coast of the U.S.
2: So how much time does a ship save if they're going through the Panama Canal versus going around
1: First of all, the, those canals save you a immense amount of time. I, I mean, the, the amount of time you save from going around South America or around Africa for the Suez is is tremendous. And this was the big issue with Evergiven, because Evergiven shut the canal down for six days. You literally start – you started to see ships starting to go around Africa. So what you're talking about going around Africa is anywhere from seven to 14 days mm-hmm. depending on the speed of the vessels. But more importantly, you also it, – it's, it's really dangerous to do it. I've sailed in the – I was a merchant mariner for seven years. I've sailed the Southern Ocean. It is a miserable ocean to sail in <laughs> because it is, it is the worst ocean in the world. It's the only ocean in the world that goes all the way around the planet. So basically, it mm-hmm. circumnavigates the planet. So from the southern tip of South Africa, South America, Australia, New Zealand to Antarctica, it's open ocean. And you get the worst swells you've ever seen in your life. I mean, massive swells. I mean, they're just huge in in the scale because those waves are just going around the planet. My, my you,
2: palms are sweating just uh, listening to this. Oh, it's it, it's it's
1: <laughs> you know, you know, I, I've ridden storms in the North Pacific and the North Atlantic, and and you know, they, they they will beat you up and throw you around. But when you go around the Southern Ocean, I, I've never been on a, a on a sea before where I was with uh, we were sailing with a navy vessel at the time where when the ship was going up the wave, you can see the entire top of the vessel going up. That's how long that wave was. And then it gets to the top, kicks over and you see the prop spinning and it heads down the slide, which is what, you know, the backside of the wave is. And, and so you, you just really want to avoid that. And so both the Panama and the Suez canal are what's known as choke points. You know, they're very important for trade. And when ever given shut the Suez for six days, You literally had 400 ships pile up at the at at the northern and southern end of the canal. And had that gone on a few more days, you would have seen ships start really ditching off and and heading around Africa because they couldn't wait much longer because the, the backup would have been weeks at that point.
2: And it's not like they have the fuel to sit there in idle, too, right?
1: Right. And, and, and a lot of ships have, you know, very limited, you know, ships will load fuel based on their cargo capacity and their route. So, you know, you don't want to be heavily loaded with fuel all the time because it adds weight to you and that makes inefficiency in going. So ships many times will have just enough fuel on board, It's kind of like airlines that, where, the, you know, they're not going to always top off. The really thing people don't ever want to talk about with airplanes is they don't always fly with a full tank of gas because it's heavy. And, and you know it, it decreases your performance, and ships are very much like that. The other problem you have with shipping, which you guys can definitely associate with, is in 2020, we changed fuels. So you have to run this mm-hmm. very low sulfur fuel now. And so <laughs> ships had to be able to find that fuel, and that was a big issue going on because if you didn't have scrubbers on your exhaust system, you had to get this low sulfur fuel. And so getting the right fuel is another issue that's been at play, and, and this is – an issue that's dogging the shipping industry today, the change over to greener propulsion, decarbonization, I mean, stuff that you guys deal with all the time is happening
0: in the shipping industry too.
2: Bruce, can you imagine them trying to put uh, diesel exhaust fluid or a (laughs) shipping Well
0: I think that's one of the ideas they had. But uh, Sal, going back, he was talking about choke points. Uh, The Panama Canal, a lot of people don't know, but Lake Nicaragua, Uh, There's been a little project on and off by the Chinese to try to build a a substitute canal. Do you have any idea if they're going to be able to complete this project, or is it going to be just another waste of uh, uh, infrastructure funds on them? Well, you know, the Nicaragua Canal is
1: an interesting one because one of the things that canal would do is avoid the lock system, which means you could basically build a canal and accommodate any size vessel through it and that's been the push for the alternative canal if, if do we want to allow the ultra large container ships to come through and the issue here is china has been spending a massive amounts of money since 2010s on infrastructure what they call their belt and road initiative and you're seeing that in the development of ports and infrastructure around the world a lot of people give china a lot of nefarious backing for what they're doing. you know, It's like, oh, the Chinese are trying to take over the world. They're militarily trying to take over. What China's trying to do is everything China does is to ensure its trade routes. I mean, China is so dependent on commerce, both imports and exports. Many people don't realize how much China actually imports, but China is really dependent on that. And so they are always concerned about what happens if a choke point shuts down. And, you know, the, the the alternative to the Panama Canal to allow these bigger ships to do has been talked about for a long time. The question is, is what happens if you do build this? If you allow these ultra large container vessels through, that would mean you need the United States to build larger ports because these ships cannot be accommodated right now in U.S. ports. And I don't think there's the economic justification to do it. If you look at the ships being built now, there's the, the, the order book for container ships now is the biggest it's ever been. And the type of ship that's the most numerous they're building are two types. One is about the three to 8,000 TEU ship, which is a good-sized feeder vessel that runs between ports, moving containers. And then the second largest size being built are those Neo-Panamax uh, Neo vessels. Because not only can they fit through the new lane of the Panama Canal, but they can fit in U.S. ports and most ports around the world. If you start bringing those ultra-large container ships to the United States, you're going to have to dredge. You're going to have to put in new uh, container cranes. And I hate to say it, but the U.S. isn't ready for that. We can't handle that. We had a hard enough time accommodating the ships that are coming in now. I mean, it costs $1.7 billion to raise the Bayonne Bridge to allow the new container ships to get under it to uh, Elizabeth uh, in, in Newark, New Jersey. And I just don't think we have the money, the capability right now to support even more. Can you imagine if you have a 24,000 box container ship coming to L.A. and Long Beach, what that would do?
2: Yeah. So what's what's more cost effective than retrofitting an old port to accommodate these new ships or just finding an empty plot of land on the coast somewhere and starting from scratch?
1: That's the big question that's going on. You know, when when we saw the passage of this port infrastructure or, or the infrastructure bill, with a good chunk of that over $1 billion being devoted to port infrastructure. I've been a very vocal critic to the to the detriment of myself sometimes because I get a lot of flack about it. But you know, I had my issue has been, okay, you, you're having this port infrastructure, you're having the Maritime Administration dole out this money. Is there any plan in how we're spending this money? Are we investing in what exists or are we going to build what doesn't exist? Because you can make the argument that, man, we really need another port and terminal on the West Coast because we're not seeing, you know, do we want to keep doubling down into LA and Long Beach? Because if you make LA and Long Beach bigger than it already is, you're not going to improve the highway system, the the railway system. I mean, it's just the problem. I mean, you're in downtown LA and Long Beach. It's a terrible place for a port. It takes you six
2: hours to go 20 miles down there sometimes with traffic.
1: Right. And, And the question is, do you want to build somewhere else? Do you want to invest in Oakland, for example, which is an underutilized port, but the problem with Oakland is where it's at. Is, is It is in Central California. The population isn't there. The rail's a problem. The road's a problem. You know The facilities are a problem. The, their, their labor relations is terrible. Do you want to go to Coos Bay in Oregon, which there's a proposal to do? The problem with Coos Bay in Oregon is there's almost no rail line in there. The highway needs to be expanded. You have to invest in those areas. But the the problem fundamentally is how we do ports in the United States. The water is owned by the federal government. The the U.S. government controls the waters up to the high, low, low water mark in each state, depending on their rules. But the ports are run by either municipal governments, as in the case of L.A. and Long Beach, or by the states, like Savannah under Georgia Ports. And the problem is the ports fight against each other. They bid against each other. They try to get business. They backstab each other. They're the nicest people when they're together, but behind the scenes, (laughs) they're trying to steal business from each other. And the problem is they, they have great proposals for how to improve their ports, but no one's thinking about a national port strategy. You know, should we be investing in the four corners, LA, Long Beach, Houston, Savannah, New York, New Jersey? Should we be investing in smaller ports? You know, should we be diversified? Should we have, a, you know, a lot of medium-sized ports? Look at what uh, Charleston and uh, uh, Norfolk and Jacksonville is trying to do. Uh, should we uh, invest in short-sea shipping to move containers between ports by ocean along with by road and rail? And, and that's my big critique, is we do not seem to have a national strategy at all. And again, when you're allocating over a billion dollars, when you control the purse strings to a billion dollars, you have a little influence. And I feel like the government is just abrogating that right. Instead, what we're going to do is give this money out to whoever has the best proposal, PowerPoint slide idea, and we're going to keep doubling down on basically our, our, our current strategy, which is going to fail when it is stressed like it's been over the past two years.
2: Yeah, like with COVID, like we mentioned earlier on a previous episode, COVID was basically an accelerant. You know, if there were any kind of weaknesses anywhere in the supply chain, instead of taking 5, 10, 15, 20 years to pop up, you started seeing them within months. Um, And as we saw, like with the ports, I had no idea that the port in L.A. wasn't run 24-7. You would think that, like, the busiest port in the entire country with that much freight coming in would be running around the clock. But no, those guys run it like, it's like, what, typical 9 to 5?
1: Five, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they run again, it, it goes back to that issue. I remember when uh, like the most popular video I ever did was right after the president said, We're gonna go 24-7 operations. Like, yeah, yeah, it like that's not done. gonna work. <laughs> you know, that that that's not gonna work. And I, I did this video where, where I was a little critical of it. I had a buddy of mine said, Oh, that's a terrible video. You shouldn't post that thing. It's the most popular video I ever did. Uh and and <laughs> I I was just like critical is like is like there's a big fundamental problem. I, again, you know, I come back to a very core concept. The idea of the container was created not by an ocean shipping guy, but by a truck driver. You know we, we always forget this. You know it was Malcolm McLean in, in you know, 1937 who was sitting there waiting to offload you, know, a truck loaded with cotton up in New York. And he sat there and said, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. This this sucks. This is terrible. You know, it's like I'm sitting here waiting. The, 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 The delay is 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 just terrible. And the amount of cargo handling that has to be done for bales of cotton is just ridiculous. And, you know, it took him 20 years. But he comes up with the idea of containerization because, again, he's looking at the entire process. You know, he's looking at the movement of the cargo from point of origin to point of delivery. And what we tend to do right now is still segregate this out, and that's a big problem. We need to be looking at the whole thing holistically. You know, I, I joke about that—that that, you know, under the Department of Transportation, there are, there are four administrations: there's maritime, there's air, there's road, and there's rail. And and you know, the, the heads of those administrations, number one, should be equal. They're not. They're, they're organized much differently, but they should be. You know, the four horsemen of the Buddha Judge. They should be under you know Secretary Buddha <laughs> Judge. And and be able to sit there and put together a coherent strategy and plan for how we're going to do things. You know, go to AB five. You guys have been talking about this for a long time. You know what California does isn't just affecting the state; it affects national policy. I did a video, which man got me in trouble too. I do a lot of videos that get me in trouble for some reason, <laughs> but but I did one, and I, I, the video was entitled, you know, who put LA and Long Beach in charge of national strategy? You know, national maritime strategy. Because it's true. I I, I mean, Mario Cardo over at Long Beach and then Gene Soroka at LA, number one, have almost no power whatsoever. They they are landlords. They are landlords to the tenants of the, the terminals there. Yet you see them all the time and they're basically writing the maritime strategy for the United States. And my argument is like, hang on, we need something. When California makes a law that makes it difficult to move containers in and out of the state, that's not local law. That's interstate commerce. And that's what amazes me about the reason that AB5 wasn't listened to by the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court has made its, its, its money on interstate commerce, that almost every law that impacts the United States is interstate commerce. And you cannot argue to me. That this doesn't impact the ability to move commerce around the United States, and and I, I think we we keep forgetting this. And one of the things we need to be doing is talking about that connectivity of freight. We're, we're just not doing it enough, I think.
2: Yeah, California is notorious for that, especially with like with the you know the emission standards and you know new equipment that companies are constantly having to buy. It's like whatever California says goes across the entire country.
1: California, I mean, L.A. announced. A couple of months ago, that they're going to talk about establishing a green route between Mm -hmm. Shanghai and LA with ships that emit no emissions whatsoever. Understand how crazy (laughs) that is? Number one, (laughs) I I mean, just just the craziness of that is is just okay. We're nowhere near that with shipping. Nowhere. We're we're nowhere near that. Uh, Not even close. And, and here's this idea that we're going to put ships dedicated on a route from Shanghai to Los Angeles. So 100% cargo is just going to be going on these ships from these two routes. And you're going to exclude every other vessel? I, I mean, I can't even tell you how bad that would be for this. But the fact that that's even being brokered, what gets me is is back in 2015, the Federal Maritime Commission, under Mario Cordova, who's who's the head, the executive director of the Port of Long Beach today, did a report. And again, did a video on this, did a report that basically talked about 90% of the issues we hit with COVID. You know, everybody knew there were issues. Everybody saw the issues. The problem is what COVID did was bring everything together. I joke about the idea that, you know, every now and then you have the occasional black swan event. Well, Mm -hmm. 2020, we were hit by a flock of black swans dive bombing us and, and they haven't stopped. I mean, it just literally, they keep coming at us. And it, the closest comparison I have to this is the world wars when it comes to shipping, the disruption we're seeing. And we can't get out of it because every time we get like just a breath of air, we get pushed down by another wave coming in. And But Cord- Cordero saw this, wrote this report up, talked to everybody. It's an amazing report because he went to four ports, talked to the truck drivers, talked to the rail guys, talked to the warehouses, talked to everybody. And the problem was that the FMC could do nothing to implement the report. But what's interesting is when he went to Long Beach, he started implementing some changes. And if you look at the two ports side by side, L.A. and Long Beach, Long Beach has been better at at everything than L.A. They, you know, they, they invested over the past 10 years in the new LBCT terminal, which moves cargo a lot better than every other terminal in that area. They've invested in rail. They've done a lot more. But unfortunately, Mario is not as media savvy as Gene is. And so you tend to see Gene out there more often. And that tends to be the story.
2: Is this the same guy that went on Twitter? um, He wanted to get like a firsthand view of like what's going on and couldn't see anything from the ground. So he actually rented a small boat and they went around and he was going up and down the area and noticing that like the containers were only being stacked too high. And he's like, well, what's up with this? You know, we have all this room to stack them. And he was learning that it was the town ordinances that limited how high the stacks could be piled. Is this the same guy or is this someone No, that, that, you know? that
1: was Ryan Peterson, the CEO of Flexport, who, who that, did Exactly. That. Yep, 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 So So he was a, he's a freight forwarder out there. And, you know, that was the thing that, that really got us, you know, back in, you know, it's funny. When, when I started my YouTube thing, I, I, I was like huge with Evergiven. And then Evergiven got f- freed. It was being held for about 100 days. And then, you know, very interesting thing. We were we were talking about podcasts before, how many podcasts are out there and, and things, and they don't last very long. And when I started doing my YouTube channel, you know, I focused on Evergiven and unfortunately Evergiven for me got stuck in the Suez and, and then it was arrested, which was a whole other sub story, you know, for a hundred days. <laughs> and the Egyptians were trying to extort money from Evergreen, which is great, you know, and I talked about that a lot. How do you arrest a boat? Oh, well, vessels are unique. Vessels are unique in that they can be physically arrested. They can be held liable for basically uh, funds. So, for example, if you don't pay your fuel bill on a ship, when that ship pulls in the port, a you know someone who has a lien against the vessel can file a writ in a court and have the ship physically arrested. And the ship is responsible, not the owner, but the ship is responsible for the cost. And so you can extract that money from the ship. You can get the fuel off of it, or you can sell things that are on the ship to do it. It's a very unique thing. Ships are treated like uh, beings under admiralty law. But 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 I was yeah to be happy. It's not trucks and cars that the same way. But I, I realized something too is that I wasn't talking about other things in the shipping industry, and so I almost lost my audience. And I realized you know I had somebody send me a note one day. It's like Sal, you know, we're listening to you but you're you're kind of losing your audience because you're not talking about the whole matter. And so I changed I changed my direction and and by September I had a whole new audience that was interested in in global maritime supply chain. And Ryan's tweet you talked about was a great one to kind of focus on because he was hitting on a subject that was really important. We were floating ideas out there of how to alleviate issues in the port. And and that was a good example of one, just stacking containers higher in yards to alleviate some of the congestion.
0: All right, we're going to take this moment to plug our sponsor. Uh, The Back Truck Up podcast is proudly presented by Over-The-Road Solutions, who provide industry-leading technology and factoring services, tools, and support to help carriers, brokers, start, and grow a successful operation. To uh, talk a little bit more about ports, and uh, if you don't know, the International Longshoreman Warehouse Union is kind of out of contract right now, uh, operating under a little bit of a good-faith agreement, you could say. Sal, let's go to a little bit of the history of what automation has done to the ports. For the good, for the bad, and the the ILWU's fight against the... Uh, Pacific Maritime Association, you know, wanting more automation to, you know, help speed things up, get a little more uh, throughput. Uh, Back in 2002 is about when this all began, uh, back in that contract negotiation up under the George W. Bush administration kind of began a couple of months before the contract went out. Then when the contract went out, you had this whole argument. PMA actually locked the dot workers out for 10 days. President Bush had invoked the Taft Hartley Act, get the ports back into operations, and kind of continue the negotiation until December of 2002 when they got that new agreement. But the master contract in that year gave the terminals the ability to deploy technology, eliminating some of the clerk jobs when you would go up to the gate, you actually have a person there that had to physically go through the Rolodex, look up your appointment, all that stuff.
1: Right. And and understand, I'll take you back a little bit further. So the unions had a massive strike back in the 30s. 1934, Black Thursday, July 5th, Yeah, was a huge event. I mean, it's commemorated every year by a day off on the West Coast. I mean, they don't just get July 4th off, they get July 5th off for that event. And that union, the ILWU, then combined together every port, all 28 ports on the West Coast. It is a strong union. And I know people have issues with unions and, and views of unions, but for the maritime workers, for the docks, uh, for the longshoremen, for the warehouse workers, this was huge because they were being pretty, treated like crud for a long time on that coast. And the West Coast is very unique because of the limited number of ports and the accesses into the West Coast. And so they have come together. So they represent, again, all those ports. At the same time, they're up against the PMA, the Pacific Maritime Association, which is largely made up of these huge, massive ocean carriers, the, you know, the big nine, you know, Maersk, Mediterranean Shipping, Hop Hog, O-N-E, the terminal operators, you know, it's a huge conglomerate. And, you know, they have pushed off this contract renegotiation for a long time. It was supposed to be back in 2014, 2015. And they had a slowdown and a lockout back then, and they decided to push it off for six years. Well, they pushed it back right into COVID. And not only did they push it back into COVID, but they pushed it back to a point when the ocean carriers are making record profits, larger profits than ever before. You know, to talk about the ocean carriers, the top nine, top nine companies in three alliances are responsible for 85% of all the containers afloat. It's a it's a massive oligarchy they control. But if you look at 2021, that year, just in a single year, they made more profits, those nine companies, than they did in the past decade combined. And this beginning two quarters of 2022, they've made more profits than in the past year. So they, they're flush with money. They, they, they are rolling Scrooge McDuck amount of money they're rolling in right now. And the unions are up for their contract renegotiation. So obviously, they they want two things. Number one, they want more money, which makes sense. I mean, the ocean carriers have more money. They don't know how to spend it because they're drunk sailors with money. They never know what to do with their money. So they're investing it in new ship technologies. They're buying terminals. But the labor unions want some of that money. And then the same issue that you mentioned is automation. What are they going to do about this issue of automation? The ports keep getting dinged for two issues. One is basically they they are just the least efficient ports in the world. And two, the amount of detention and demerge in the ports are tremendous. And the reason for the detention and demerge is they can't move the containers. Your your containers are just, you've overrun the ports with containers. And so the the push here is for automation and the union has come out strongly against automation, but I think you have to quantify what we're talking about here with automation. You know, when you look at some ports around the world, you know, Shanghai, Rotterdam, there are some terminals that are completely automated, which means there's no humans at all. You know, there's no humans in the cranes. There's no humans in the trucks. There's no humans at all. That's not the level of automation that we're talking about in L.A. and Long Beach. What they're talking about is automating it so that when truck drivers come in from their appointment, it's an efficient system. It's not a, a system that is so archaic. That most appointments aren't being met. I, you know, I have a fundamental issue with the executive directors of the ports when they blame truck drivers for missing gate appointments. When those gate appointments are so tough to get into, and you're missing a gate appointment because you're on a line for six hours in Wilmington, and you can't get to the to, to the gate to get checked in on time, or you show up at the gate. And you've got the wrong empty container on your back that day, or they can't locate your container because it's buried in a stack. Because prior to COVID, the terminals allowed owners to stack containers in the terminal for as long as they like and not to det- charge detention and demurrage. Yeah, the
2: first job I had at the Packer terminal, I was paid $10.99 and I was paid per trip. All we were doing was we'd go in, pick up a box, put it on a chassis, and then take it across the street and park it. And so you were paid per trip. And if everything went smooth, you could maybe be maybe do 10, 11 trips a day. And that's pretty good money. But it never went smooth. Every time you pick up a chassis and there was a flat tire or like you said, your, your box was lost in the stack somewhere or it would be at the bottom of, you know, four other boxes stacked on top of it. And you got to find someone to, you know, move all those boxes down for you. I, Until I joined the Postal Service, I had never seen a more inefficient system in my life. <laughs>
1: well and, and that's you know that that's one of the issues and and when you look at things like the ocean shipping reform act and what the fmc has been talking about is is what the military refers to as intransit visibility is is to increase the visibility i think for most you know most most people outside of freight are their vision of freight is the postal service and amazon where I order my package from Amazon I'm tracking it on my phone from leaving the warehouse to arrival you know I'm literally getting a note that hey the d- driver is 10 doors away from you you know mm-hmm. and and what most people don't understand is man there is not that visibility when a container goes on a ship and, and until it arrives at a warehouse oh the, yeah it just doesn't exist and you know you've got a lot of companies that are investing in in you know visibility of containers and tracking them but you know this is the problem we have is that the container terminals were operating not under under capacity they were under, operating under well well under capacity so they had the flexibility to move containers around to let containers sit on their yards for more than 9 days this is this isn't a joke when november last year when la and long beach came out and said we're going to charge you $100 a day and it's going to increase exponentially Every day with it. And they have never leveled this fee. And, and, and to me, this is just a number one, I think it's illegal for them to do it. <laughs> I think it's excessive detention to merge. This is at the same time, by the way, the FMC was sitting there saying, Well, we're investigating excessive detention to merge. Like, okay, right there. There it is. I found it. It's right here. And and they kept putting it off. Every week, I joked about this nonstop, and everything. I even got a. Little, I even printed up a little card with every week where they would extend out my uh, detention and demerge, you know. So like, I can get a free like a uh, uh, milkshake at, at the Port of LA,
0: uh,
1: <laughs> uh, And 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 now all of a sudden, you know, it's going back up again. And and I think one of the things that automation has to do is improve the flow of it. You know, what listen, before I got involved in this, when I was just looking at the shipping side, I didn't know crap about trucking. I really didn't. You know, I didn't know anything about it. But now what, what's very clear to me over the past two years is how interconnected and how crappy truck drivers are being treated, much like mariners are being treated in many ways. It's universal across the transportation industry, You know how crappy we, te- we treat the people who we rely on to deliver our goods. And if there's not a seamless flow from the container yards, from the terminals to the trucks, to the rail, to air, that's a problem and that's what we can fix. this is inherently in the United States. this is something we can fix and the union should be pushing this. I, I don't understand why the unions fight against this automation because the automation isn't going to eliminate jobs. It's going to phase out jobs over time but it takes 10 years to upgrade a terminal. 10 years you know in 10 years people are retiring. You know, you start phasing out jobs over time and you start bringing in new jobs because a lot of those new jobs are going to be clerical in the office type stuff, you know, so that you get a ding on your phone as you're in your truck that your container is ready for pickup like I get for my pizza. You know, it's it's ready for pickup. You show up and you grab it and you're in and out in, in a less amount of time. It makes it more efficient. It, it allows, you know, you, Justin, to... To profit from the job you had, where you can move containers in a more seamlessly efficient manner, and everyone benefits from it, and it just drives me crazy. You know, sometimes it takes people outside the industry, looking at it, to see where the issues are.
2: Yeah, I never understood why they're not paid by the container that they move as well. You know, this fight against automation. A lot of the stuff in there, it's nepotism. Um, you walk into some of these terminals and. Everybody's related to each other. The the guy working the gate is the cousin of the person that's, you know, checking your paperwork in when you get into the office. So, you know, it's, it's one big happy family there. And I think they're very scared of, you know, not being able to hand these jobs down to their children or grandkids. You know, some of these people you go in there, they've been working there for three generations in a lot of these places.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I see it in, for example, in the pilot sector where you know ship pilots uh you know i joke for a long time one of the, the best jobs in, in sailing ever is is to be a pilot it's great it's fantastic the problem with becoming a pilot was number one you had to be like an apprentice pilot for like five to ten years and you're paid minimum wage and like you know, okay in new york no one can survive on that no one can <laughs> you know unless your dad is a pilot and you can live at home with him and come to work with him then it works great and, and, you know, that, that, that's areas where you see that. And again, we, we have to look at it. And, and the problem I have, listen, I, I've been talking about this story for a long time and I keep getting the same blowback from everybody. It's like, oh, there will no, be no strike. There's going to be no lockdown. There's going to be no shutdown. We're going to have an agreement in place. And then we went past the July 1st deadline and everyone's like, oh, it's fine. We're negotiating. Everything's fine. There's going to be no lockdown, no strike, no nothing. Yet they're not talking about it. And what I'm worried about now is a lot of the trade journals, especially those that are dependent on the big ocean carriers and everything, are now pointing their finger toward the ILWU and sitting there saying, well, they're the problem. They're, you know, they, We were having an issue with the union, and, and the union doesn't want to agree. And I think they're going to try to push it on on as a union issue, when in truth, it's both sides. If they can't come to an agreement, this is both sides. And what scares me more than anything else is that we've seen a lot of White House involvement in this. We've seen the Secretary of Labor, uh, Marty Walsh, being involved. And I think if if understand when that last slowdown happened back in 2014, 2015, we were not moving nearly as much cargo as we are today. And more importantly, there were alternatives if something happened on L.A. and Long Beach. There's no alternatives now. You know, we're, we're getting record capacity in the ports. So it's not like you can just shift everything. This is what when LA and Long Beach had a hundred ships off their their port, everybody's like, well, just go to the East Coast. It's like, you can't do that. You just can't move. <laughs> I mean, I know the ship I, I know the ships can move, but you can't do that because you know the terminals are expecting the containers. The containers have to go to the warehouses in the inland empire to be unpacked and reloaded, put onto trailers for shipment. You know, most people don't understand that. They don't understand that that ocean containers Aren't the thing you see on the back of the trucks going up and down the highway usually cuz you're seeing 45 53 foot vans most 20 40 foot ocean carrier containers don't go more than what 100 miles from the port usually
0: yeah. so
1: you know you got to have those warehouses to do it and in many ways we're really at the end of the container cycle here we we really need to start thinking about how do we how are we more efficient in moving cargo
2: well that so we were talking to Oakland earlier as like a potential port You know, part of the problem there is there's just not enough space for any of that stuff. Looking at trucking, that's basically what the town of Tracy is. Tracy, California is just a gigantic warehouse for the San Francisco metropolitan area. There's just not enough space for the amount of stuff that goes in and out of that area every single day. And so, you know, I joke all the time. If you have a CDL and you live in Tracy, California, and you don't have a job, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) <laughs> i mean it's just it's just nothing but trucks in that area
1: and, and, and that's exactly what you saw outside of savannah you know savannah 10 years ago was a small little port i mean there was no, i mean savannah was a big problem it was it was hard to get into because of the draft issues but savannah sat there and said okay this new lane in the panama canal is opening we're going to invest and they dredged they developed the port and when you got outside of savannah there was nothing outside of savannah i mean you you drive you know through you know you know, just open fields and and swamp and everything. And what they did was develop, you know, pop-up yards. They, you know, they developed uh, warehouses. You know, there there is room available in South Carolina and Georgia to do that. And that's what makes a port like Savannah so good. When I read, for example, in Oakland, that we're going to give oceanfront to the Oakland A's for a new stadium and that there's no need for this land for transportation. I, I sit there mm-hmm. and scratch my head and wonderment. It's like, who made that study? Because they don't understand the potential that Oakland has. The the problem in Oakland has been the management there. They just have not gotten on very well. They, they, they were not able to move cargo efficiently. And it, it's a potential goldmine for them, but they don't want to develop it. And instead, what they're going to see is this development of this area into an athletic stadium, and it'll generate revenue, but not as much, I think, as if they use it for transportation in the long run. I, I mean, I... Again, this this is California, but the problem is the ports in California are run by municipal governments, local governments, not the state.
0: Well, one thing about Georgia, the environmental laws aren't as, aren't as taxing as California's. You can <laughs> literally you can literally go to Home Depot, buy about six rolls of chain link fence and some posts and make a pop-up yard. That, that, that's, all, that's all you need. You, you don't have to have the big surveys, everything you got to have in California. And you can get some federal
1: money to do it too, which was amazing. Again, yeah. that was, you know, <laughs> what got me was is is because we talked about this again. You know, everything we're talking about is, is when, when LA and Long Beach were talking about the fact that they were awash washing containers, it's like, okay, why are we not hiring, you know, drivers to move empty containers out to a satellite yard a mile or two away from here? Let's find some open land. And start, you know, easing the congestion. Because the problem is they had to do so many picks and moves to get a container onto the back of a chassis. That's what's what's slowing everything down. When your container is full, I always, you know, I, I literally did this with Lego on one video where I showed this. You know, it's like, listen, it's easy when there's only a few blocks, but when there's many blocks, it's hard. You've got to do multiple moves and it it becomes like a Rubik's cube of movement. It's it's very difficult to move. And you just make it less efficient.
2: Yeah. Compounds very quickly. So let's say I work at the Los Angeles port. I want to get it running 24 seven. Is it the union that's pushing back against it running 24 seven? I,
1: I don't think it's the union. I, I think one of the problems they have is, is the union, you got a couple of things, obviously. You, you need to bring on an extra shift, which means the PMA who hires the union are going to have to pay that. And, and this is the other underlying thing that's not talked about ever enough. Is that the Pacific Maritime Association to save money will they don't want to hire a, a third shift union because it costs them so much money because it's late night it's overtime it's a huge amount of money and, yeah, and if they, I'm
2: if I'm the, if I'm the union I want that because the more people I hire that's more union dues coming into my coffers
1: but but the union has got to be careful because they're very concerned you know they have what they call these casuals and they've been bringing new union workers in but they. Th- that union has been very careful about bringing in too many members because they know they have to pay them on the backside, on the retirement yep. side. And oh, it's, it's just like the postal service—they're using casuals. Yep, and, and so ah, they're, br- they're bringing these casuals in that that are not union members, not full union members, not entitled to yep, all yep, the benefits. Yep. But and so they've been doing this, and and they've had eighteen thousand casuals on the books. For over a decade, but they're only bringing a few hundred in every year, and so they've been very slow at bringing them in, and and so this has really slowed them up, and so the PMA has been slow about this. What I think, and again, they started doing this is you got to talk to the big container operators, the ones who are getting, getting most of the containers in those ports. You know, if you're not getting the Amazons, the Targets, the Walmarts, those companies right there, you make a deal with them to go 24-7, to start moving their boxes, because it's too hard for the small operator to do it. But it's easier if you have a big company doing it. Let's start clearing your boxes off on the off-shift hours, you know, and you give them some sort of deal, some sort of incentive to do it. The problem is they've been using the stick instead of the carrot lots of times that's that <laughs> hyper demerge I was talking about you know i'm yeah. going to you know i'm going to find you if you don't move your container instead what you need is you need to incentivize them you know and get them moving and you make a deal and 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 the problem you also have is man you got eight terminals in la you know it's like it, it's it's containers are coming in for different carriers across the board and and this is this is again the problem you have is is okay i i need to pick up a container for walmart i don't know which terminal i need to go to you know you know, is it the TTI terminal? Is is it, you know, which one is APM? I, I don't know which one to go to, you know, which ones are going to be. And it creates those problems. And again, because you don't have satellite, you know, w- the United States is unique. Most terminals, ocean terminals overseas, they receive the cargo, put it on the dock for a very brief period of time, and then send it off to a, a receiving yard. They don't use the terminal as the place to get the container. There, there is a, a system in place to move those containers off-site so that you can go in to check in the container and get it, you know, they because they don't want to block the container. They don't want to block the terminal. And so they always have dedicated drivers just moving containers off to the satellite yards. And that's something we need to be talking about. Inland ports are such an important element. I'm in North Carolina. We have an inland port in Charlotte, you know, where we're moving containers from Moorhead City and Wilmington to that inland port where people who or are closer in there can pick it up. They don't have to come to Wilmington and Moorhead city to pick up the port, the container. They can go to Charlotte to get it, but we have dedicated truckers. that are going to move goods from those ports, from those ports to Charlotte.
2: The congestion at like the Packer terminal, it would be uh, not really stevedores. I don't know what you'd call them. They're they're basically the guys that they go on the ship and they're driving the brand new cars off of the ship into this big uh, receiving yard that they have. And they do all of that, Within a stone's throw distance of the truck gate, so you have trucks trying to come in, you got cars trying to get out. They have to block traffic coming in and out while the cars are being shuffled around, and all that's doing, as far as like the way I see it, is you're just at risk for more accidents or, you know, brand new cars getting dinged up while they're you know trying to avoid all the trucks in the area.
1: Oh yeah, and and you know when you start adding the different levels of of cargo that's out there, you know we've been talking about containers, but you know cars and and bulk. And, you know, a lot of ports do multiple things. You know, L.A. is almost exclusively a container terminal, but Long Beach is a little bit of everything. It's, it's cars, it's, it's bulk material. Uh, Baltimore is a good case of that. Baltimore is a little bit of everything. It's a great little small, medium-sized port that does a little bit of everything. And, you know, ports like Baltimore should be really the model we're looking at right now of, of how do we develop ports like that up and down the coast. You know, back in the day, you know, you would move cargo up and down coastwise. And one of the reasons we didn't move, we don't move a lot of cargo up and down coastwise, is because we built an interstate highway system. We had fairly low fuel costs, you know, compared to places like Europe uh, and, and where trucking was so expensive, you know? So, you know, if I offload a container in LA, it was nothing to load it on a chassis and get it to Seattle in two days. You know, if I did that by ship, it was going to take multiple days to do it. It's going to cost me additional port charges. And then I still got to put it on the back of a chassis eventually and move it. And so it was just more efficient to do this. But we, we have to look at how we're doing transportation in this country differently because we're, we're literally at the system. The other problem you have is just the growth of freight over, overseas. You know, in, in 1980, we moved on the ocean 4 billion tons of cargo, 4 billion. This year, we're probably going to move 12 billion tons of cargo. Wow. And, and, you know, when, you, when you're having that amount of level of growth in 60 years- you know, what's the next level? You know, what happens when we hit 15, 16 million uh, billion tons of cargo? Can we handle that? And, and my question is, we're not. We're at capacity now. And how do you move it more efficiently?
2: Well, a couple of pieces slid into place when you mentioned the union's reliance on casuals. You know, there's a really big problem with the Postal Service as well, where I, I used to be a postal worker. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> um, we have a lot of issues there, where like letter carriers, for example, it doesn't take any requirements. You don't need a degree. Anyone can walk off the street and with a little bit of training, they can be delivering letters the next day. So you get hired on as a casual, and under the promise that you know you stick around for a little while, guys above you will retire, and then you'll get converted to a regular, and then you'll get your retirement, your pension, you know, all that all that good stuff. But what's happening is nobody's retiring or at least they weren't. And you'd get guys at some stations that were there 10, 15 years as a casual before they got converted. Like it was insane. And the same thing was happening with their truck drivers. I was hired in 2017, but I was hired as a career employee right off the bat because they realized the opposite was happening with their truck drivers. The guys are retiring faster than they can be replaced. And it wasn't even worth it to hire somebody as a casual, only have them on for a few months and then have to convert them to a career, and then finally a full time career. I was hired part time career, but I was working full time, and then within a year, I was converted to a full time regular. Uh, part of what's happening with the, the letter carriers is that because you have this constant churn of the casuals, you know, people get people get hired, they work there for a few weeks, and they go, "Oh, this sucks," and then they quit, and then it's just another wave of new people coming in, and it never stops because. The longer you're there, the better you see everyone above you being treated. And it's, you're never, you, n- you never see anyone actually make it to that level. And I, I have to assume the same thing's happening at these ports where you got guys that have been, you know, working there for 10, 15, 20 years, living a good life, good for them. But then the, these new guys get hired on. And I don't know how long it takes for them to get converted, but, you know, some might not see it being worth it. And then they quit and then they got to bring on, some new people again, I I think the sooner these unions stop relying on, on casuals and decide, okay, we might have to either hire less people, but bring only regulars on. I think, I think they're going to have less problem with retention and you'll have better, you'll have guys with better experience going forward. It's not going to be a constant churn of new inexperienced people.
1: No, I I think that's right. And and again, I I think we're seeing that across multiple sectors. And again, it's not just the longshoremen and and the dockyard workers, Mm -hmm. it's everything. We're seeing it in the shipping industry where, you know, to sail on a vessel, you have to be a union member and you have to upgrade your card, you know, where, you know, the A card is what everybody wants. But, you know, I'm a C card and I got to take the cruddy job and I got to keep trucking away here to get moved up to get the better thing I want. And a lot of people get discouraged and they just jump out and, and, and we're seeing that across the board. It, it, it's, it's tough. And the problem of course right now is now we're in a period where a strike or a lockout lockout is possible. And what that's causing is instability in shipping. And when there's instability, when when people have doubt, it, they're either going to ship their cargo to other ports, which means the West Coast may start seeing a decline in cargo coming in, which again hurts the union because now they're not going to need as many workers. Or even worse is you're going to see increased freight rates, which is going to be translated over to more inflation over to consumers.
2: Yeah, I wonder at what point are companies just like, all right, screw you guys, we're going to a different port. And even if they eat that cost for a year or two, they start to realize, okay, this actually is worth, we'd rather eat the cost than have to deal with the headache of, you know, my ship being stuck off the coast for a hundred days or whatever.
1: Well, and that's what you're seeing is, is, is people are paying more for freight because of reliability. You know, I need to get this cargo before November 1st for the holiday season. And if it means I got to sail it to Savannah versus LA Long Beach, and I got to pay extra money because I got to go through the Panama Canal, it's longer voyage it's a smaller ship therefore the freight costs a little bit more i'm willing to pay that because i have time is the thing i'm paying for not so much the commodity i need to have it here at this time it doesn't do me any good to get you know you know christmas lights delivered on december 31st
2: you know i have to get them yeah. here yeah known known costs are always going to outweigh
0: uh, unknown risks no exactly so i have one more question for you over and under, on how long we got to wait for another evergreen ship besides to belly flop on land? <laughs> well, you know, uh, one of the
1: things that uh, there was a great report came out not too long ago talking about ship accidents at sea, and one of the things that we're seeing, believe it or not, is ocean shipping is is safer today than it's ever been. It really is. The amount of accidents, ships losses at sea has decreased. You know, it was not too often that we were losing a major ship one or two every week uh, a decade ago. You know, now we're down to losing maybe a major ship on the ocean every two weeks, which is still terrible. I mean, still horrific, but it's a problem. The, The issue with the ships and groundings are a an issue we need to address. We need to be aware of that. We keep talking about port infrastructure, dredging and cranes and, 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 and roads and warehouses and everything. But the thing we're not investing in in anywhere near enough money is things like tugboats and fireboats and issues due to the size of these vessels. Whenever Forward got stuck outside of Baltimore, you had to physically offload that vessel. No one has offloaded a grounded container ship in 15 years with the introduction of the new large container ships this is the first time we've ever ha- seen anyone have to bring cranes out and start taking physical containers off the vessel to lighten it and again that's because these ships are operating they're so big operating in very narrow lanes on the, you know in dredged lanes and we need to be investing in the infrastructure and tugs and dredging and 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 Everything associated with operating these vessels, the problem is we're using tugboats that were designed for vessels half the size. And that's a big problem. And, you know, we've seen some examples of that fairly recently, you know, just the other day off the coast of Australia, a bulk uh, carrier uh, lost propulsion, nearly came ashore south of Sydney, Australia on this pristine beach. And if it wasn't for the kick-ass action of several tugboats getting in there and pulling them off. You would have had a disaster last year. The uh, motor vessel President Eisenhower, leaving L.A. Long Beach, lost power off Santa Barbara, came within a mile of the beach. If not for a tug out of Port Wyneme, she would have ran aground. We had a tug. We had a ship in Norfolk Harbor lose propulsion, maneuvering around a burning vessel, and nearly went into the Navy piers. Almost t-boned a Navy ship. If not for several tugboats that were there. And so, you know, it, it's that infrastructure. It's the things we tend not to think about. I was never aware of the shortages of bathrooms for truck drivers until, you know, I, I really got involved in, in this sector. And it's like, of course, this is so simple. Of course, you know, everybody needs bathrooms. Why are there no bathrooms being provided? You know, that's the type of infrastructure we talk about. It's sound, it's not sexy. No one gets, you know, no one gets, no one is on board the commissioning of a dredge. You know, it, they're just not. It's not an exciting moment <laughs> to, to launch a dredge. But man. When you get stuck, or, or better yet, if you don't want to get stuck, we need more dredges. We need more dredges in this country, digging out the harbors, digging out the channels, making it safer for these larger vessels to operate. We need a fireboat. You know, the time for a fireboat isn't when the ship's on fire. You better have that in place, ready to roll beforehand, or else you're going to get caught. And, you know, the, these vessels, when they catch fire today, are, are extremely dangerous because you don't know what's in the back of containers, and yeah, the manifest is this, but guess what? There's there's computers in the back and they're lithium batteries and you're never going to put a lithium battery out. So you better be ready for that. We've seen this with car fires on car carriers recently where, where one car catches on fire and you might as well just head for the lifeboats because you're never going to get that car fire out because those batteries in the cars are not going to go out.
2: One gaming computer laptop has the same kinetic stored energy
1: as a hand grenade in yeah. the batteries. And, and you got container loads of that stuff, and 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 yeah. and again, the the amount of we saw in a recent example of this on a ship off the coast of Sri Lanka, the Express Pearl, where it was carrying, uh, I think it was uh it was a type of acid, and it started to leak, and they couldn't get a port of refuge. They put the fire out, but when they arrived off of Sri Lanka, off the port of Colombo, the vessel caught fire again. Complete constructive total loss. The entire vessel was gutted. More importantly, it sank in this pristine water off the coast. And it's a disaster. We saw it off of uh, Brunswick, Georgia, when the Golden Ray capsized. And the salvage operation, we allowed the salvage operation to take place where they literally cut the vessel into eight slices. Literally had to bring out the world's largest all Right. And and instead of rolling that vessel, floating it up and taking it somewhere, they decided to cut through the vessel, including the cars on board, and then tell the people of Brunswick, Georgia, no, there's going to be no contamination of the water whatsoever. (laughs) And and it's like, and that wasn't just the salvage company, it was the U.S. Coast Guard. And it's like, how do you make that decision? How How are you telling me you're going to cut a ship, not just in half, but into eight slices, and not pollute Brunswick Sound? and cause in massive environmental damage. And again, that's because of the rate of shipping. We allowed a ship to sail out of Brunswick, Georgia in an unstable condition. The ship had not taken ballast, so it was in a very top-heavy condition. And when the ship made a turn, it rolled right over. And you know, we, we see it with trucks that are improperly loaded, and we see it with ships that are improperly loaded. Now, there's not enough stevedores in
2: the world to uh, fix some of these problems. No. So in the U.S., do you know of any ports that run 24-7?
1: I mean, it, it depends on on the level of the ports and who they're they're servicing. And so one of the things you'll see is that warehouses and some terminals will kick 24-7 in certain periods of time if you have a ship coming in. So a lot of the of the car yards, you know, when you offload a, a roll-on, roll-off ship, for example, will be moving cars throughout the period that you're bringing car carriers in. So, you're you know, you're loading cars on carriers and moving them off. Consistently, The question is, is the receiving yards? It's all a matter of the receiving yards. Are, are they able to receive it? And if you have dedicated warehouses in the area that can receive it, if the rail lines can be taking the cargo, then 24-7 makes sense. And you'll see it at times. And the, the question I always have, going back to LA and Long Beach, is why this was not looked at. More understand they were using that downtime and they were operating maybe about 16 to 18 hours a day, LA and Long Beach. So they were operating, you know, two long shifts and they were using that downtime to kind of reset the yard, clear out some stuff and, and get ready to go again. But also because the PMA did not want to pay for that third shift. And that's a big issue is, is, are they willing to pay that extra money to keep them operating because i would argue the longer the gates are open the more containers you're going to move out you're going to get cargo moving it may not be the peak flow that you're having during daylight hours but you're going to move it but you've got to incentivize those shippers to come get their cargo and right now that's not what they're doing we've seen examples of it and it works but the question is will they go to it because it costs money
2: yeah and you said that you know Having company like say Amazon, you know, they pay to have them run an extra shift. The reason you see postal trucks running around on Sundays is because of Amazon. They're not delivering mail. They're delivering Amazon packages.
0: Oh, July 4th, they were delivered at Amazon. The Postal Service was running around doing Amazon packages. I'm like, y'all are working on a federal holiday? Yeah, just uh, Amazon and uh, stuff like that.
2: Yeah, they're trying to clear out the uh, back rooms of the stations that they're working in also it's
1: the easiest overtime they've ever made (laughs) And, and that goes back to that issue about okay how do we solve this problem and those are some very simple solutions that can be done the problem is again those ports are not run by the likes of gene and mario they're run by the by the terminals who in turn are represented by the pma and the question is are they going to willing to pay that and, you know, how do you incentivize them to to move these cargoes off? You know, one of the things we've been seeing is is steadily increasing since January is the congestion in the yards, in the terminals. And, and it's ticking back up again. And, and the question is, are we setting ourselves up for a repeat in the fall of 2022 of what we saw in the fall of 2021? The problem here is going to be it's not just going to be in L.A. and Long Beach. It's going to be in all these other ports on the East and Gulf coast. It's going to be in Savannah. It's going to be in Charleston. It's going to be in Norfolk. It's going to be in New York, New Jersey. It's going to be in Houston and it's going to look worse than it did last year. You may not have a hundred ships off the port, but you're going to have a lot.
2: Yeah. And the unions are in a really strong position because it's not like these shipping companies are struggling. You know, you mentioned they were making record profits. So they have probably the best case on their side right now for wanting more money and possibly going on a strike until they get it.
1: Yeah, I mean and everybody's looking for workers, everybody's getting more money than ever before. And probably the other thing too is that more people are today aware of supply chain issues than ever before. You know, back in the day you couldn't talk about ships with people from Iowa and in and, and Nebraska and Illinois because it didn't make sense. You know, they didn't really visualize it, but now farmers and manufacturers and retailers are well-breasted of supply chain and they realize how important the ports of LA and Long Beach and Savannah and New York, New Jersey are to them.
2: Yeah, out of sight, out of mind doesn't cut it anymore. If, if you're not staying on top of this stuff, you're going to get caught by surprise if you're not paying attention to everything.
1: Yep, I agree 100%. Uh,
2: Sal, this has been our record-length podcast so far. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, this is this is great. It's always better.
0: Sal, where can people find you out on the on the socials? Sure. So, uh,
1: you can follow me on Twitter at Mercogliano S M E R C O G L I A N O S. And of course on YouTube at what's going on with shipping.
0: Awesome. Uh, great having you back on here and great talking to you again, my friend. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that is all for the show this week. You guys can find us at batttheruck.com, at Bat the Truck on Twitter. Search for back the Truck Up on Facebook, and you can catch the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Simplecast, Stitcher, and anywhere else we can find a place.